Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. I'm here today with Steve Rush, who is the author of his best-selling book, Leadership Cake, and the host of the Leadership Hacker podcast. As CEO of Improve Consulting, Steve is a people and business transformation expert and leadership coach, helping organizations and individual leaders globally improve performance, productivity, and engagement. Steve, it's great to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks ever so much for having me on your show today. It's great to return the favor. I enjoyed being on the Leadership Hacker podcast as well. Um, so first of all, could you introduce yourself, give a bit more of an intro and your background? I know that you work with leadership teams. You wrote the book, Leadership Cake. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what you do for leaders and high performance? Sure. So um, after a long, successful career as an executive for major global banks, uh, decided to take some time out to find out what I really wanted to do uh, and ended up by accident in helping others through their work. And my work as transition and leadership coach really helps businesses and uh, organizations of all sizes go through any change that they're dealing with, be that their systems, their processes, their organization, or indeed themselves, and how they're transitioning through from one place to another. And that's the core work that we do there. Brilliant. And I know that you're also an NLP master practitioner as well. So you're very good at kind of shaping people's thoughts and the way they think. Um, just to kind of kick off then, what would you say uh, makes a great leader? So I think there are probably two or three things that make great leaders. The first thing I would experience that makes a great leader is recognizing that leadership isn't about you. It's about giving control back to as many people that you work with and empowering them. Uh, that's the first and foremost. Uh, and I guess the other thing in parallel to that would be just having an enormous self-awareness. The best leaders that I work with, by and large, the more aware they are of themselves, the impact on others, the work that they do, the way that they communicate, the higher levels of self-awareness that they have, the more effective they are. The less levels of self-awareness they have, the least effective they are. So probably those two things. Okay. And we can come on to a moment because you mentioned their communication, which is obviously fundamental. But in terms of just picking up on what you said, in terms of that level of self-awareness, how can an individual become more self-aware? Can you elaborate a bit on that? Is that on their own kind of qualities, but also maybe limitations and how they might improve them? What, what would you say in relation to that? It's a bit of an oxymoron self-awareness, isn't it? Because you can't do it on your own. Mm. You can definitely be aware of how you are perceived and behaved but you do need other people to help you on the way so you know getting feedback from people getting um, information surveys insights uh, and effect of what you do is really important too so one of the things I often encourage my clients to do is not just get feedback get feedback off the back of the activity of the activity so that you get real depth of understanding of how effective you've been so self-awareness whilst it comes and it needs to be driven by individuals is supported by getting insights and data from other people surveys um, different information uh, and broader than the organization you work in and that, that could include also the people that you live with at home uh, that you know they'll also help provide a different perspective to how other people perceive your work mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense and 
In terms of, and I, I know this comes across in NLP quite a bit as well, you work a lot in terms of communication, but we have that on two levels really, don't we? In terms of communication with ourselves and then also with communication with other people and the importance of language. Yeah. Um, how can we kind of yeah, get a better grasp of the impact that our own, our own language is having, not just on ourselves, number one, and then also on other people? Well, in uh, NLP, there is this uh, study called sensory acuity. And basically what it means is watching the effect of how you are impacting on others and in those people around you and how they're responding. Uh, and it's just noticing. And coming back to language, by the way, this is not just about the things that we say. It's also the things that we do. So our nonverbal communication uh, often used to be referred to in time gone by as body language. Uh, I just prefer it to be to call it non-verbal communication, we spend much more time uh, through non-verbal communication. And understanding sensory acuity is about understanding how people are responding. So if I've said something to somebody, is there a little twitch uh, in their, their lip that says that they're pleased or displeased with that? Is there a little glint in their eye? Is there, have, has their breathing increased as a result of what I've been, uh, been communicating with them, that would indicate to me that I've created their heart to raise quicker and therefore if they're breathing quicker, I should be able to notice that. Therefore, that tells me that I may not have been as effective as a communicator as I'd intended. Because if somebody's breathing fast, it means the blood in their brain is pumping faster and they might not be uh, uh, as, as pleased with the communication that I'd seen, unless, of course, the, uh, the breathing was as a result of being excited and happy. And, of course, the nonverbal communication through their gestures, their, their body stance, as well as the words that they say will tell me that too. Okay, so this is almost, it's, it's kind of almost going above and beyond just being present, isn't it, in that moment? It's actually taking yourself out and becoming an observer of what's going on. Because yeah. most people, I guess are often thinking about what are they going to say next, what the impact on that conversation is on themselves. But it's almost being objective enough to remove yourself then and, and look at that other person and see the impact. Is that what you're saying? Very much so. And it's about noticing not just the, the, the language that you choose to use and the way that you use your language, but it's about noticing more importantly on how it lands. Because, of course, communication can only ever be communication if it's two-way or three-way in many cases. In other words, I'm sending you a message uh, and how are you responding to that to let me know that you've got it or not, as the case may be. And if I don't see that through gestures or through nonverbal communication, I definitely need to hear it. So otherwise, it's not communication. I've just shared information with you. So it's very much is about almost taking a third-party view and being an observer in the communication and noticing exactly what you have to do. And that takes practice. It doesn't happen overnight, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I can see that. It takes um, a degree of coaching, I imagine, especially with a leader, for example, in, of, a, of a large organisation when they're communicating often with a big number of people yeah. um, to have that impact. Um, we also, when we were chatting earlier, you were talking about something that was very interesting about acting on intuition and how actually it doesn't start that feeling, that gut feeling doesn't start in the gut, yeah. but is down to this shift in neurotransmitters yeah. and dopamine. Can you explain a bit more about that? It was really interesting, I think, for people to hear. Often within business, and you'll notice this both at work and at home, we get that gut feel, and that gut feel will either say do something or don't do something, run towards it or run away from it. But the irony is, is it, it's got very little to do with the gut. It's got everything to do with our brain. 
And what typically happens is on receipt of some information, we might be scanning, um, you know, to see if we can recognize a pattern in the information we receive. And we might only notice a couple of things. And as we notice those things, uh, we'll either think it's good or it's bad. And unconsciously, we will trigger, or unconsciously, the information that we take in uh, will trigger a shift in dopamine. And what happens is, whilst we are only presently aware of a few things, the unconscious part of our brain is scanning tens and tens of thousands of experiences from the moment we've been born to the moment we've received that information to give us a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And an example would be if, if someone has been maybe lying to you. Now, you might not know this individual whatsoever, but you just get that gut feel that they're not being as honest with you. And that's because what's happening is unconsciously uh, that shift in dopamine is going, Whoa, pay attention, this might not be true. And therefore, the tens of thousands of experiences that we've had throughout our lifetime of people being less than truthful to us will go, you should, you should pay attention to that. Now, here's the thing. The, the danger is that the, the shift in dopamine, the, the, um, the gut feel we get is caused by that adrenal gland just paying attention to that shift in neurotransmitter. But the research suggests that at best that's probably only about four out of uh, five times that that's accurate. So 20% of the time it's complete and utter baloney and we're making it up and it could be a bias that we hold. It could be that the person that we're speaking with sounds like somebody that we used to know that lied to us once. It could be that they look like somebody that, that has lied to us in the past. And we need to be really careful. So what I always encourage people to do in any walk of life is always, always pay attention and listen to your that gut feel but don't always act on it because it could be a bias. And the only way, of course, we could do that is through communication. So ask more questions, validate the information, test it out, and check out whether or not your gut's being truthful or not. Uh, and it's a good indicator. And I think if, uh, if people were uh, of, a, of a betting inclination, I'm not, but you know, if you were to bet a horse that was 80% chance coming in, I think there'd be a few pounds on that. But equally, it's really important that 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 horse could still fall at the first hurdle. So we do need to validate that dopamine shift, that intuition. And that comes, as you say, from asking more questions and what also maybe stepping away a little bit and having time to think about it, almost letting your subconscious mind tick it over, would you say? Yeah, and of course, whenever we receive information based on our experiences, it will make us feel good, bad or indifferent too. And if it makes us feel particularly uncomfortable or particularly bad, then we're not going to be um, engaging the right parts of our brain to think clearly and, and carefully at that time. And what about unwinding that? If there's a bias that maybe it's because, you know, a little bit like that expression, once bitten, twice shy. Yeah. What if that's driving it rather than it's genuinely something that you need to step back from. So it's not about the other person. Actually, it's about you and understanding when you need to shift your own thoughts. Okay, because we've, we've been programmed, haven't we, for the most part between the ages of one and seven. So how can people begin to understand, actually, this is part of my programming and maybe I need to look a bit deeper within and, and change my thoughts? It's a great question. You know, we are programmed from a very early age and actually it goes way beyond seven. So there was an old philosophy that suggested that, you know, show me the, the child until they're seven and I'll show you the adult. Well, that's been disproven now that actually we continue yeah. continually able to pivot our thinking and our emotion. Uh, and we, we have created that belief system over however many years we've been on this planet. And that comes from our associations, our, our, our communities, our education, our backgrounds, our, uh, uh, lots of things that we're associated with through time, including things like revelation. So, you know, I've, 
I, I found out something today about me that I didn't know yesterday. So now all of a sudden I know I can do something that I thought yesterday I couldn't do. They're all still forming part of our beliefs and our thought systems. And just like we uh, chunk them together, we can unchunk them and unlearn what we've learned. And particularly with biases, it's important to face into what's caused them. Now, there are a number of different ways you can do that. You can do that through that through coaching or counseling. And, and in some case, therapy will help you uh, remove some of the, the guest outs. And a guest out is just a chain of events that's created in your mind over a period of time. Uh, but most importantly, it's thinking about, you know, what is, what, what, what is it you're trying to achieve now? And it's being in the present, thinking about present and not past that's most important in this time because the biases and experiences of the past may not serve you well. And understanding exactly what's in front of you now from a clear and cognitive perspective will also be really helpful in terms of what you do next. And then learning new patterns and new habits and new behaviours about what it is you do want to achieve. And that's also back in that part of the limbic system. Uh, there's part of our brain called the basal ganglia and its job, that's where our habits and routines hang out, is to help us to work on things that we want to spend less time and less energy on. So things like we, we take for granted now, like driving uh, our cars at 70 miles an hour down the motorway for long periods of time. We'll do that without any thought whatsoever. And that's because our basal ganglia is kicking in and it's working for us. But that same little muscle in our brain can learn new habits and new behaviours. And it's all about hitting the repeat button. So do things that are new, new thinking and new thoughts. So if I want to instill a new thinking as me as a leader and, and, and demonstrate that I can achieve things that, that are in a different place than I've achieved in before. It's about the habits and routines that sit behind them and repeating them and repeating them and repeating them until they create their own habit forming energy, if you like. Okay. That's interesting. Cause I mean, <clears throat> is it, is it both things? Is it the habits and behaviors and also the thought patterns as well? Have you got to reprogram the brain into that new self. So you've almost got to believe first that you can achieve it, right? You're creating a new self. I know if you're familiar with Dr. Joe Dispenza's work, um, but he talks about a lot about this in terms of meditation is like, what's the old you that you want to leave behind and what's the new self that you're going to create. And really when you're doing that, you're creating from the unknown, aren't you? Which is something that we've all been plunged into all of a sudden now, not just leaders and people that want to be high performers, but all of a sudden there's no precedent. What do you do in the state of a pandemic? Very few people have really lived long enough to know. And if they were, they were too young. How can you, so I kind of want to break that into two almost, because one is reprogramming your beliefs and conditioning that new self, isn't it? And then the other one is putting in place the habits and the behaviors that do that. So if we talk first about the thoughts that you do, how do you change that thinking to create that new self? So the thoughts that you're having, the first thing I'd ask you is almost a little bit of inner coaching and self-talk. Is that thought helpful or holding you back? It's the first question I always ask me. So is that going to be helping me or is it going to hold me back? If it's going to hold me back, what's causing it to hold me back? How do I get there? And if it's going to help me, then what are the things that I then need to do to create more of that? So it becomes more of an actualization or a visualization of what I want to see in the future. Uh, and in NLP, we use uh, labels to help people do this. So an example being I was, I was coaching uh, a very senior director of a global organization who had struggled for many, many years to have an impact around the board table. And when we unpicked the reasons that they were um, being ineffective in that environment, the thoughts that they were having were, I'm never going to be as good as my CEO. 
Uh, I'm not as confident. I'm not as capable. And all of those thoughts, of course, are really unhelpful and holding that individual back. So what we help that individual with is by changing their label and giving them the label of CEO. What it helped them do is if you were now in CEO, almost changing your hat, if you like, but you had your CEO label on, what questions would you be now asking? What would you be expecting to see of other people around that room? How will that help with your confidence? What questions would you now be asked? How can you be inquisitive if you step into that and, and start applying that thinking and label? Then you not only change your thoughts, but you also change the behaviours and your behaviours then change your actions as a result of it. And then, of course, it comes back into once you've, you've, you've changed that thinking and your, your behaviours, you've then got to change your disciplines to ensure that they're aligned to where you want to go next. Mm. Yeah. And I love, cause you and I make the same comparison of um, comparing those success traits with that of an athlete. And if you look at athletes, the Olympian doesn't train just to be out on the track. They're already thinking, how am I? And envisioning themselves, aren't they? As that gold medalist and the Olympian, right? They've made it to the Olympics and they've got through, they don't, and then they train like an Olympian would, and it guides every decision they make. Um, I, I find that, I find that, and we were going to come on a little bit to self-sabotage, that that thought process helps my clients so much because all of the things that they struggled with, and from my perspective, it's usually on a health coaching side, but making wrong decisions, for example, you know, they've got sugar cravings, they give in. Um, actually, if you're thinking about, if I was an, you know, world-class at what I do, how would I treat myself? Would I be eating this now? a lot of it falls away because you wouldn't be treating yourself. You're giving yourself the greatest respect almost. Yeah. Is, that, is that what you find? And the parallels are identical in, in leadership, in business, because as business individuals, they'll also make that same call around, you know, can we be uber effective and will I be as, you know, the next Elon Musk? And all of that is really, really important. What lies underneath that, though, is where focus is. So visualization is really healthy. Having a clear end goal and direction is absolutely critical. But it starts with those basic foundations of what am I going to do today, tomorrow, and how am I? And, and on the point of self-sabotage, self leaders are great at this because what they'll do is know full well there are some really horrible, nasty things that they need to avoid, but they'll spend loads of time doing the things that make them feel good and they make them uh, feel more important rather than doing the right things. Uh, and that's just corporate sabotage almost, isn't it, rather than self-sabotage because there are other people that are impacted by your decision-making, not just you. Mm. Yeah, that's very, very important. Um, and so in terms of looking at that, because I know that you very much believe that it's the structure and the discipline that creates freedom and that we don't have control over our performance goals, as, as you rightly said when we were chatting earlier, that particularly this pandemic has identified that to everyone because any goals that companies may have had at the beginning of the year may have been taken completely off course and they're following a, a new one. Can you explain a bit more about that and what people can do in terms of, because we all want control, don't we, right? We want to feel in control. What can we do to move ourselves closer to our goals? 
it's a really interesting one and probably the one that I have most dialogue with, with all my clients, be that at corporate and organizational design level, as well as at individual level when they're running a business themselves. And it's because we all want to feel important and in control of our business because we have an investment in it. We're emotionally and physically invested in what we do. The irony, of course, is by doing so, we're then stifling innovation and thinking and, and uh, the evolution of our business at the same time. So it's learning to give control away of the things that you can give control away providing people are competent and capable capable to do it and it starts with understanding that what's the reason you're in control of those tasks and activities in the first place and in my experience it's often to do with uh, feeling important or not trusting other people but it's coming back down to being in control of only the things that you can control and giving away uh, and delegating and sharing with other people and for me, that starts with, you know, what are the things that are going to make the biggest difference in your day and how are you going to structure your, your week, your month, your year and create a set of governance? Because if you start to think about the whole philosophy of structure and discipline equals freedom, often people will say to me, well, that's ridiculous. How can I be structured, disciplined and still be free? It feels like I'm, I'm, I'm being constrained almost. But it's the country, of course, because if we don't give ourselves the ability to be organized and disciplined to get the things done, we'll never have the ability to do the things that we want to do otherwise. The work consumes us. And many of the executives that I coach and I work with are entirely consumed by their organizations. They don't take time out for their family themselves, their fitness, their well-being. And as a result of it, end up in the burnout zone, uh, very uh, and, and a regular occurrence, unfortunately. And my job of work is to help them think about how do they spend time in the high performance zone and maintain their performance at a high level. And the only way you can do that is through structured discipline and recovery. And we'll maybe come on to that in a moment. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to go into that in a little bit more detail because I think we, we're, we're very similar on this. In terms of if we come on to recovery in just a moment because I think I completely agree I think it's so fundamental but if we look at the structure and the discipline initially is that about being um, creating some quite firm boundaries would you say around working hours how long you work um, things like that can you elaborate a bit more on how you can maintain in that high performance zone sure so structure for me is is around having control over me and my activities. So for instance, I run what I call my model week. Anybody that's worked with me will, will, will know that familiarly. And the model week typically is a rolling four weeks. And over the rolling four weeks, I've got four boxes every day. And every box in every day is an activity. Now it's not telling me that I've got to go and do X, Y, Z task. It tells me a bucket load of activities, which means over four weeks, I've got 80 bucket loads of different activities that I can um, facilitate. What's key here though is to work out what are the most important, the most, the highest priority and the highest value adding activities and putting those in the diary first. They also happen to coincide with things that we don't usually like because they're things that we often procrastinate. So the big enormous tasks that we want to do should go in the diary first every single week. And then the things that are desirable and nice to have, we'll put around the edges. I call those gravel. And then the, the, the like to have, which is often what gets our time consumed, I call the sand, goes around the, the, the edges, if you like. And then as a result, your diary is organized. 
And because it's structured over a rolling four weeks, what that ultimately means is you're only planning one week after having set your rhythm up, if you like. Because every week rolls off, another week rolls on. But what it allows you to do is decide how you can package out some of these activities. And just to give you an example of how that's helpful, uh, one of those rocks might be recovery time. And what that might mean is that I actually, I'm just sitting back, I'm carefree, I'm kicking back and I'm relaxing and I'm doing nothing but other than absorbing more energy to be more effective. I used to have a, a curveball morning, which was a Wednesday morning and I had two boxes every Wednesday morning with nothing in it other than a little box that said curveballs. Now that sounds contrary, doesn't it? Why would I have time planned in my diary to do nothing? Well, it's because nothing ever happens. It will always be something that happens during the course of the day. And at the end of every single day, I'd have a little box that said triage. And it was between, you know, half an hour at the end of every day. And if I couldn't finish it there, you'd go in my Wednesday box. And what that meant was anything that came my way that was a curveball during the day, I had half an hour to fix it or to file it. If I couldn't fix it, it'd go in my, in my curveball box on a Wednesday. And it's, it's about creating the governance so that I'm not then distracted, which is the most important thing. Mm big key tasks because the, the thing that I see happen most often is executives have a curveball that comes over the top and it lands in their desk and it distracts them from the job of work they're doing. Now that we can't ever get away from that. And that's always going to be the case in the corporate world. But did they then move what they were doing into the curveball bu bucket or on, on a Wednesday morning, or did that just stack up? If that happens readily and over a period of three, four, five or six days, then the discipline I'm now, I'm losing discipline, I'm, 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 I'm demonstrating a lack of control. And as a, result, as a result of that, all of these big tasks mount up. What's going to happen to me from a physiological and an emotional perspective is I'm going to get waylaid by those. And at some point, the deadlines aren't going to change. Someone's going to ask me for them and I'm not going to be able to flirt. And our bodies are just like bridges, aren't they? They'll be, you know, they'll take a weight load and they'll take a weight load for a while, but eventually those bridges will just collapse under the pressure of the weight. And that's exactly the same in our managing our tasks. And that's, that's the whole process around structure and discipline is getting that order so that we can be, you know, in control of the things that we need to apply. And if there was one thing that I could, could share with you from a personal perspective is that this is probably the one thing that allows me to make sure that I don't procrastinate because... Mm -hmm all have a natural ability to want to procrastinate, put off those big tasks, put off the, the ugly tasks, things that I don't get stimulated by. But it's the one thing that makes sure that they get done. Because if they don't get done, then they usually end up uh, causing me stress or anxiety at some point later. Yeah. So this is almost the, um, almost if we look at the four quadrants in Stephen Covey's, it's almost like the box that is the important but not urgent, which is the one that we should be spending most of our time in and actually end up not doing so. Yeah, so this, he, he had, uh, from memory, the urgent and important matrix. Yeah. It was the bit that, you you know, that if it's urgent and it's important, you, you do it, that's your rock. Uh, and the stuff that's the sand and the gravel, which is the stuff that we usually do. So, yeah, I might like to go and spend lots of time with my team and my colleagues and have away days. And there might be wonderful things to do and there might be great value adding things. But are they the most critically important things to do? Then is the question we need to ask ourselves as to whether or not it, it is a rock or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. I know um, Michael Phelps uses the acronym WIN. So what's important now? Uh, 
yeah, quite light. It's quite easy. Um, so I just on those buckets because I find this fascinating. I want to just um, break that apart a bit more because I don't think I fully understood it. So you've put together a four-week diary. So let's say so we, we're recording this at the end of April. So let's say someone wanted to begin this. They'd be looking at May and putting together those four weeks. When you talk of the 80 buckets, what yeah. within within the first week, let's say I'm writing a book at the moment, right? So that's a big goal for me. Yeah. That definitely is important, but not urgent, right? It's something I could easily put off. So yeah. is what you're saying, that would be a bucket of, book writing that gets scheduled into the diary first which is what I've been doing right and then there would be other ones as well the big rocks and how many big rocks do you have because you you can't have too many presumably or they become sand because otherwise you you know yeah it becomes impractical and unmanageable the first thing is to just work out what are the big rocks in your world you know what are the things that are going to create the highest return in value highest return emotionally and the highest return for the amount of effort that you're going to um, apply in. So that's the important urgent matrix from Covey's world. So what are the rocks? And then plotting them in, not in next week, but in over a four-week period first. Right. What allows you to do then is to see what are the gaps? Do I have too many rocks? And actually, from my experience, most people's rocks aren't really rocks. They might be really, really important to them, but they're not critical. And it's just understanding and unpicking the value between is it really a rock or could it be gravel? And gravel can get moved from week to week. Rocks should stay still and be uh, and, and should be static given the nature of their size. That's metaphorically how we, we kind of play that out. And then in doing so, all the things that are still desirable that we want to do, so it could be personal development, it could be uh, I want to take up a new sport, it could be anything else that we want to play in, we put around the rocks, not instead of the rocks. Okay. But would you, because we're going to come on to recovery, would you classify recovery as a rock in and of itself? 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, because um, you talked about having 80 across those four weeks. How have you got that number? Right, two in the morning, two in the afternoon, five days a week, four weeks, typically. Okay. Got you, two in the morning, two in the afternoon. Okay. Listening to this, it could be that there are 16 rocks. Mm. There are five, you know, or five boxes. It just depends on people's workflow. It depends on the, the tasks, how they set their, work, their week up. Um, I found it was really useful having activity boxes because what it would mean, for instance, it could be that uh, I have an activity box that said business development. And that might change from week to week. So I might not put the tasks in, but I know that on a Thursday morning when it's raining and it's cold and uh, in order for me to drive new activity to the business, I needed to do something in my my first two hours of every Thursday that was business development because it was the first thing for me that used to go because I'm not great at going out and rah-rah driving business. That's not my style. I'll leave that to other people in, in our business. But it was important. It was essential. It was critical for me to do that. So therefore, it was a, it became a rock for me. So too did recovery, actually. Uh, and as part of me understanding more about me and my well-being, to avoid burnout, I used to make sure that on a Wednesday afternoon, I had two hours where I went home early and did my work. And that was recovery for me. It was where I went to the gym. I'd get home and have dinner with the family. And it was you know, phones off, relax. And that became part of my model week too. Mm. I like this because I think this will help a lot of people as well working from home because it provides a really good amount of structure. Do you, do you schedule that straight into the diary or do you use something like Trello or somewhere else to create boards? How do you do it? Or do you just put the time in the diary? Use Outlook Diary. 
uh, colour code my rocks and my gravel and my sand. So it's dead easy for me to see, you know, on a day and a week, what, what are the, the most important things and where they come for two reasons, actually. Uh, one, it's not only really helpful for a full week look out, but I also know that if there is something coming, is there a box already scheduled for this week that I need to do that in? And then I, I just, I literally, oh, that's on a, that's a Thursday job. I don't need to even worry about that today. So straight away, cognitively, I'm clean. That goes in my Thursday rock box because I know I've allocated time to do that. Uh, and that's, that's really helpful. But particularly now, when we think about the, the environment that we're working with, many people are working from home, this becomes even more important. Right? because we've got distractions at home that we didn't have in the workplace. We might have family, we might have um, people that were homeschooling, might be elderly relatives that need attending to, and our job of work still needs to get done. And therefore, having those, those activities, disciplined activities in our diary now, that doesn't change. In fact, if anything, it becomes more important to reevaluate what those individual rocks are right now. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it's interesting because people, I think, are going a bit off track because if you look at the um, electricity usage figures, I think they came out today, um, it's gone down by at least 15% or something at eight o'clock in the morning, but people are up consistently to about midnight. So people have slightly, they've, they've lost that, that routine, which is actually the most grounding thing. Um, so in terms of you've got your um, big rocks and you're saying you schedule in recovery, this is something... Uh, really important. Can you explain a bit more about that? Because I know, especially for leaders, entrepreneurs, creative thinking is is so important. So it's not just about avoiding burnout, which is a biggie, but also um, I think to be a really creative thinker, then you need recovery. But can you just expand a bit more on that um, and how people can ensure that they're recovering well? Recovery is that paradigm shift where, you know, in order to be fully effective in the future, uh, and, uh, and I often find myself saying it feels uh, counterintuitive to, to tell oneself, take time out to be more productive. But it's absolutely essential to do that because our brains just haven't got the capacity to be able to keep going. There's no other machine on this planet of, of, of human form or other that, that can just keep going. You know, if you look at Formula One cars, they race around a track for about 10 or 15 tracks. They come in and they get new tires, they get new fuel. That's their recovery. If you look at industrial machinery, that gets timed down for servicing. You look at the railways, there's always trains off. And, and we're no different. And we, and we need to think of ourselves in exactly the same space. If we want to maintain high performance, we need to take time out. If we don't, what happens is the, the lack of sleep impacts on us immensely, so much so that it impairs our cognitive ability to function. And when that happens, the part of our brain where we make our executive thinking, our executive decisions happens, this is the prefrontal cortex. And so it's where our kind of decisions, where we make sense of the world. Ironically, when something doesn't make sense, where do you hit your head? Oh, it doesn't make sense. And it's just kind of one of those things that we do unconsciously. That doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because we're running on emotional energy. And we're running on survival mode. And therefore, the prefrontal cortex shuts down while our body tries to throw its blood and its energy to our muscles to keep us awake and to keep us um, feeling positive. And that's not right either, because then the decisions we make aren't productive. They're not, they're not thoughtful and they're not effective. And particularly if we lead people and lead organizations, then that's compounded even more so. And you can pretty much see some of the corporate decisions that, that are made and some of the activities that, that senior leaders can display when you know they're just not getting the right levels of sleep. 
And the best way I can describe it is that if you didn't eat for three or four days, the worst will happen to you is you'll be hungry. If you didn't sleep for three or four days, you'd be pretty much on the brink of psychosis. Mm. You lost complete cognitive impact. And if you just think about that as a principle, sleep for us as leaders is probably fourfold more important than, you know, grabbing lunch. You're probably better off having a, a, a 50 minute nap than you are grabbing a quick fast food sandwich at lunchtime. Now, I know it's not a substitute, it's not an and or or moment, but it's that kind of importance that I think uh, that we need to make sure that through uh, the work that, that, that we do and anybody else is in the world of, of, of corporate leadership, that has to form part of uh, an essential part of our leadership capability and our, our behaviours too. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. It's an area I work on a lot with clients and teams is sleep and optimising sleep and getting the right ratios in terms of deep sleep and REM sleep. So you've got that emotional regulation as well, um, proper memory formation and, and all the health benefits that go with it. Um, I, I remember actually when I was um, a young lawyer and we were just pushed and pushed so hard, I think I did this stint that was like 85 hours long. And in that period, I'd slept for two and a half hours. And, and by the end of that process, you know, I actually, this has never happened to me in my life any other time, but I fell asleep while I was talking. So not just listening to someone else, but mid-sentence, because eventually your body will just say, you now have to sleep. Um, And that's if it doesn't end up making you sick first, right? Um, That's the thing. And if you look at, you know, the times where we've been most tired at work, if you look at the quality output of the work Mm -hmm. we present at that time, I've looked at notes I've written when I was really, really tired and done exactly the same thing in the corporate world, you know, and I've worked late into the night and I've looked at my notes the following day and I thought, it's just gibberish. Mm -hmm. I can't decipher it. And that's because our, our, our unconscious thinking is not connected to us making notes. It's, it's working on keeping me alive at that time. Yeah, so true. And I think as well, what people underestimate as well, like apart from sleep in terms of recovery, if you're not doing something that fills your cup, that's not recovery. So watching the news is not recovery. You know, doing something else or going onto social media, checking in is not recovery. It's actually doing something that regenerates and gives you energy, isn't it? There's a critical distinction. And it's really important because often when I speak to uh, uh, execs and I say right okay recovery for you could be that you know every 15 minutes you, you walk you get some water and you take the long way back to your desk it could be something as simple as that or it could be that lunchtime you go for an, an hour's power walk but providing that you're not glued to social media that's cognitively impairing you and mm-hmm. triggering that threat response in you for you know because of the price of your your stocks have gone down or other things are impacting you so it has to be pure recovery and, and that could be even 60 seconds of doing absolutely nothing but just being in the moment and being thoughtful and being mindful of of absolutely nothing that could also be a you know a 60 second reboot in the middle of a day that that's what recovery is uh, and of course it can include things like spending time with the loved ones and family and sports and exercise and gym and nutrition and all the rest of it too you also talk about micro recoveries, which I think is really key. And you created something based on a lot of research, the, um, the Chaplin effect. Do you want to explain to people or the Charlie Chaplin effect what that is? Because I found that very powerful. So this is all about the way that we, are, we as a species are distracted from our routines and our behaviours. So you'll all notice a time where you've been at a meeting 
or you've been on a piece of work and eventually something happens where you just lose focus on your work and you're easily distracted. Now science tells us is typically that's about 12 to 13 minutes and then you know when you're out of office or your, your Microsoft office pops up and there's somebody's email you, you can't wait to get in it and you'll leave your work behind and of course productivity suffers. And we learned this actually from Charlie Chaplin and that's why we call it the Charlie Chaplin effect in that he was the first ever movie maker to create a feature length film. And when we worked out what the reasons were behind this we found that even without neuroscience and psychology, Charlie Chaplin had, had noticed that in the movies he was producing and sharing, after about 15 minutes, the audience would get really twitchy. So he figured what he would do was change the reel after 15 minutes. So if ever you get an opportunity to watch a Charlie Chaplin, an old Charlie Chaplin movie, whilst they're in black and white, you'll see a real uh, strategic change in the way that that movie's presented. So there'll be 15 minutes of chaos where he's being chased by the Keystone Cops or he's in a a spot of bother. And then 15 minutes of peace, quiet, the music changes, the environment changes. He'll be sat on a bench and be passing a rose to a a young lady trying to call. And then the, the police will catch up with him and off he'll go again for 15 minutes. And we've adopted that in our work too. So whenever we run facilitated workshops or events or we develop and design learning and and development for our clients, we make sure there's always a real change in 15 minutes. And we also make sure that there is no feature length film that runs beyond 90 minutes because by then you need recovery. Mm. Recovery, of course, can be intra session too. So that moment of, you know, do I, do I, stand up after 15 minutes and have a stretch uh, and walk around the office. That could be recovery. You can after 30 minutes stand up and, you know, you know, do some press ups. That could be recovery too. But it's just been really thoughtful that, you know, we are easily distracted as a species and scientifically after about 12 or 30 minutes, we're, we're going to be uh, looking for that opportunity to be distracted. And as a result, we lose loads of productivity. Yeah, absolutely. I um I like to do this challenge where you have to do um you start obviously the day on on zero, but I like creating kind of mini scorecards. So the hundred burpee a day challenge. So you've got to do you know you can break it down. You can do sets of twenty, and then you'll have less breaks, or you can do sets of ten burpees. And even just that ten that increases the blood flow, and actually you have a way more productive day if you've broken it down. And then you have the added benefit at the end of the day of going. Even if I didn't achieve anything else, I did a hundred burpees. It, feel, it feels pretty good. Um, but yeah, it helps uh, on every level, I think. Um, what, would you, um, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self, having got all this research now and experience of working with teams, and also you've pretty much got your, well, you've got your own routine very dialed in. Looking back, if you could go back, what advice would you give your younger self? So I thought about this long and hard. Um, at 18, I was really ambitious and I was probably a little bit like a moth around a, a lamp and I was flittering around lots of different things about what to do and so on and so forth. But what I wasn't looking for was, you know, the passion and the love for doing something. I was probably chasing something much bigger that I was nowhere near in control of. So, you know, I wanted to be an exec. I wanted to be a director. I think at 18, it's probably, I want to get a nice suit, but actually it's about, you know, loving what you do will mm. give you the outputs to do what you love. And there's been time in my career that I've just been in that motion, that washing machine of I'm just stuck in a job. 
And I wasn't in love with the job that I did. And it wasn't until I realized that you can be in love with your job. You can be really passionate about what you do. And by being really passionate about what you do, it creates more energy and it, it provides more mental focus at work, which helps you become more pr productive and increases your performance. Mm -hmm. So if I got the opportunity to go back at uh, my 18 year old self, uh, I would say just focus on the things that you're really passionate, things that you love to do uh, and be energy that you get from that will help propel you in any direction that it takes you yeah i agree with that do what you love um what's your um own morning routine like because we've heard a lot about your diary and your kind of bucket lists and your, your big rocks what about setting yourself up for the day what does your morning routine look like so it's a really uh, great question. My morning routine is pretty straightforward. So it's changed most recently. So, um, but I, I always get up at uh, circa six o'clock in the morning. Um, I have always had a minimum of seven and a half hours sleep. So I, I kind of set my alarm back and I've always got a, a go to bed alarm. So I know what time I need yeah. to go to bed. Uh, once I've done that, uh, I'll always have a coffee and some breakfast in the morning. Um, I, I always used to skip breakfast and uh, I've come to the conclusion that that wasn't also helpful for my, my effect of my day. My day's already planned um, in terms of what I do. So I'm quite lucky that I don't go into thinking, oh, what should I do now? Mm. Uh, the structure that I give myself, I know broadly what I do each day. And therefore, I'm in control from the moment I get in that. And within the course of my, my day, there is always some time for exercise. So at the moment, it's either on my Zwift in the garage or it's a walk or a run. Uh, I've got an old sporting football injury, which doesn't mean I can run very far, but I can cycle very reasonably well. So, uh, and that's my recovery for the day. And it always means that I've got a conclusion too. So you, you, you rarely catch me working late into the night. Um, if I am working late into the night, then there's a give back in my diary somewhere else. So I move, I move that back. So it's a, it's not, a, I'm working late and I've mm. done, I'm working late. Where do I get that time back? Yeah, I found that. I think um, I've learned that over the years. You can't kind of work late and then expect to be on top form the next morning. So your exercise is also scheduled, is it? Do you have a certain time of day that you do that? And that varies actually, okay. uh, only because at the moment we've got three people using um, our Because <laughs> you're homeschooling at the same time. <laughs> but usually uh, I found that my exercise, middle of the day is best for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been getting up and going to the gym early in the morning. I've tried that and uh, it just doesn't work for my, uh, my rhythm. And equally late at night, I'd start to procrastinate. But if I manage to get it at lunchtime, then I can nail it and, it and it gives me the energy I need for the afternoon. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. And um, let's finish with what's your favourite book or author that has inspired you most along the way? So I'm lucky I've read uh, hundreds and hundreds of books and, and I think, uh, you know, it's been a real help in my career, but there was one that quite early in my career that I read and, uh, and while some of the, the methodology and some of the terminology might have adapted and morphed and changed, it was the one that had the biggest impact on me and that was a book called Leading Change by John Cotter. So John Cotter is a Harvard business professor who's written a number of different books um, on change. Uh, and his kind of simple eight steps then was really helpful to start thinking about me and how I needed to change and why I was being effective or not as effective as I could be. Uh, and you know what? Yeah, I think it was probably 1995 when I read that. Um, I still use some of those principles to this day and it's, it's really great foundations in order to help me uh, and indeed now my clients and their transitioning journeys. 
Brilliant. And obviously you have your own book as well, Leadership Cake, I believe it is. Uh, Leadership Cake came about in uh, 2013 uh, and it's been published all over the world and really um, uh, humbled and uh, it was a great experience. And, and the Leadership Cake came about as a, as a almost as a metaphor really to help people who were a little bit stuffy and couldn't find that kind of inner humour in themselves. And, uh, and I was coaching a, a chief executive at the time who was a, a very introverted accountant who thought he was leading a wonderful business, although his, his entire colleagues of his board and indeed the rest of his business thought otherwise. And I couldn't get him to see that. And, and it was only when I started to think about how can I, how can I get him out of his comfort zone and how can I get him to think about himself differently? So I thought, oh, yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll get him to think of himself as a cake. And the, the metaphor I used with him on that day was that, you know, I think you've got all of these ingredients and they're absolutely brilliant. In fact, there's too much of them. It's overpowering the cake that you've got. And then over here, you haven't got any eggs or flour. And, and therefore what you haven't got is a cake and, and and he went, Joyce, that's brilliant. He said, I hadn't really thought of myself as that. So you're kind of the essential ingredients in leadership cake are communication, authenticity, knowledge, and empathy. They're the essential things that bind the cake together, not the only things. The whipped cream filling in the middle, that's the kind of metaphor for your personal development and investment in you. The more of that you invest in you, the thicker that whipped cream filling becomes and the more tasty as a leader you are. And the icing on the cake is your brand. And what does your leadership cake brand say about you? Does your icing on your cake say you're a great leader to follow? And when they cut in, will they find that all of the ingredients are as expected or when they cut into that, that glossy icing, will it be really rare? Um, so that's kind of leadership cake. Uh, and, and of course, if uh, th- those that are listening to podcasts, enjoy podcasts, I'd invite them to come along and, and have a listen to our uh, podcast too, which is the Leadership Hacker podcast. And um, we've got fantastic guests talking lots of different things that are all about people and behaviours and leadership. Yeah, brilliant. I, l- I love your podcast as well. Um, and where else can they connect with you? I know you're pretty active on LinkedIn. Do you want to give your social handles and also your website? And then I'll put them all in the show notes as well. Yeah, I guess um, the best place to, to start from a social media perspective would be LinkedIn for me. And uh, all my other, so you'll find me on uh, the Leadership Hacker uh, in Instagram. You'll find me at Leadership Hacker on Twitter. You'll also find the book Leadership Cake and me uh, as, as me, which is at S underscore improve underscore uh, on Twitter. And um, from and your website? websites uh leadershipcake.com you can have a look at the book and a little bit more about that and the leadership-hacker.com for the podcast brilliant i will as i say i'll link to all of those in the show notes thank you so much for coming on the show today steve it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and thanks for having me on your show thanks for listening remember to review and subscribe You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.